Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China and Thailand pledge to deepen pragmatic cooperation in multiple fields. The Qatari Prime Minister says a framework on a phased ceasefire in Gaza has been reached, and German economic experts warn of consequences of decoupling from China. You are listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ke Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China has expressed its appreciation to Thailand for upholding the One China Principle. When meeting with Thai Prime Minister Seta Tavsing in Bangkok, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi also noted China is glad to see Thailand play a positive role in regional stability and world peace. On his part, Seta said his country attaches great importance to bilateral relations and anticipates that the visa-free agreement between the two countries will help boost people-to-people exchanges. China and Thailand cemented a mutual visa exemption deal for each other's citizens over the weekend. Wang's trip to Thailand is the latest in a packed month that has seen him in Latin America and four African nations. So for more on the trip and China-Thailand relations, I had a talk with Dr. Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. We started our conversation with his perspective on the significance of Wang's trip to Thailand and the broader context of China's diplomatic efforts across diverse regions. Well, the uh, past few weeks, uh since the beginning of the new year, have seen Foreign Minister Wang Yi has traveling widely across the world, from the Africa to Latin America, and also, of course, now in Southeast Asia, China's neighbor Thailand. That I think the trip and his Minister Wang Yi's, I think, itinerary uh, demonstrate certainly a very much uh, kind of the importance that. Chinese diplomacy and the the message that has been sent by first and foremost that China, as always, will continue to exercise to show the kind of more responsibility and the duties in providing certainties, sort of stabilities for today's fast changing and turbulent world, particularly in terms of peace and development. And as far as the specific countries that have been concerned, I'm talking about Africa, Latin America, uh, certainly I think it, it has some background. For Africa, for one East African tour, we all know that China, China Chinese uh, foreign minister has over the past 40, excuse me, 35, 40, I mean years, 30 years and more have developed a kind of a tradition or that to, uh, to visit, to plan and visit the first uh, sort of, and uh, uh, the new year, first trip to Africa. And of course, this year also coincides the uh, hosting, the holding uh, of the Forum for China-Africa Cooperation the FOCAC. And so big events for China and Africa development. For Latin America too, again, uh, China and the Latin American countries are going to host the uh, cooperation forum for China and CELAC, China and Caribbean Af- and Latin American countries. And for this trip to Thailand, it is uh, the annual uh, consultation uh, between the two uh, foreign ministers, and they aimed at implementing the uh, agreements, strategic guidance provided by the two uh, leaders. So. But again, as I said, that uh, such an activism, such an, uh, a sort of a commitment demonstrated very much, I think, China will, as a responsible major country, will continue to, ex- to, to play such a role, uh, will continue to make contributions to peace and stability by advocating the uh, initiatives, the uh, Community building and community share feature, but the particular, I mean, most importantly, I think on the question challenges facing the world, 
by advocating and implementing called the uh, equal and orderly multipolarity and also I think uh, universally beneficial and inclusive economic globalization. So many messages, but the most important thing is I think very strong and continued commitment for China as a major country to do more in terms of peace and stability and the development for the world and for the developing countries in particular. Then Dr. Rong, specifically on China-Thailand relations, Wang Yi mentioned that Thailand is a priority in China's diplomacy with neighboring countries. What strategic considerations might be driving China's emphasis on its relationship with Thailand? Well, Thailand is true, I think, uh, as has and always priorities or a country for China's diplomacy, particularly for China's neighborhood. And China and Thailand relations has, again, for the past decades, seen a steady and healthy growth. And next year, I mean, the visit by Wang Yi, it also, I mean, has significant because next year, the two sides are going to celebrate, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations. So going to be this year is very important. This meeting is very important. But I think the, the specifically, if you look at the uh, relationship of China and uh, Thailand, there are quite a lot of big issues on the agenda. Bilaterally, as we have seen that the political trust will be growing and steady and strong, and at an economic or practical a cooperation level, we'll see that there are some ongoing big or mega projects uh, China and uh, Thailand are working on. And the uh, construction of Thai- China-Thailand uh, railway is, is one of them. This is under the framework of BI. The interconnected development of China, Laos, Thailand is another. And also I think these uh, make big uh, infrastructure project is related to the uh, opening the central line we call the uh, Trans-Asian Railways. At the sub-regional level, China and uh, Thailand are working very closely as co-chairs of Lantau uh, Cooperation, and uh, uh, which is, again, uh, a very important area for sub-regional cooperation integration. And again, of course, at the China-ASEAN level, Thailand is is an important country of ASEAN. And so within the context, China and ASEAN cooperation, China and Thailand are also working very close to pursue the vision of building so-called five homes between China and ASEAN, uh, paving grounds for China and ASEAN community of a shared future. And of course, culturally, as we have, and uh, the people-to-people interactions, the cooperation, there are also many, many issues uh, they can work on. And China and Thailand relations are very close. They are, I think, very much uh, uh, special in terms of China and uh, Thailand. I was talking about one family. So close relationship, close neighbors, and close friends and partners. During their talk, Wang Yi emphasized the importance of Thailand upholding the One China principle. In your opinion, how does this stance impact China-Thailand relations and the broader geopolitical landscape in the region? Well, the One China principle, One China, the Taiwan, the question of Taiwan touches upon the uh, political foundation, and it's a fundamental prerequisite when China develops relations with other countries. And we very much appreciate, I think, Thailand's positions and stance on the question of Taiwan. And we have seen that Thailand, uh, once again, reiterated its uh, positions on one China principle, recognized by recognized one China principle, and uh, firmly uh, support, support China, supporting China's positions on that. This is very much important. And as I said, touched upon the political foundation. And the very fact that important country like Thailand pursues and upholds these principles represents 
and certainly the uh, I think the prevailing consensus of international community and of one China principle, and also I think the irreversible. I mean the the, the overall trend that Taiwan is part of China, and there's one China, and Taiwan's part of China, and the Chinese. Uh, they come the uh, People's Republic China uh, represent is the sole government. I mean, the sole uh, government represent all Ch all China, all the Chinese people. So this is a very much important in this context. I think whatever happens in the part in the China's Taiwan region is not going to change that. And as a matter of fact, uh, there are over uh, with the public of narrow recognizing one China principle. Upholding the UN resolution of 50, the related UN resolution, it also shows that this is uh, the one China principle has become uh, kind of part of the basic norms governing international relations. So this is, I think, where the importance or the the relationship, uh, I mean, the the positions of Thailand. On Taiwan and on one China simple holds. Doctor Rong, the mutual visa exemption agreement was also a focal point of their discussions. is set to kick in on this March first, allowing citizens to travel visa free for up to thirty days. How do you foresee this agreement affecting economic ties, trade, and people-to-people -people exchanges between the two nations? Well, definitely, I think. Uh, with that arrangement taking effect, uh, become effective March the 1st, China and Thailand people-to-people -people exchanges will be seen a great impetus for that. And we are expecting and more and more Chinese tourists. And of course, uh, Thailand, uh, Thai people visiting each other, China and visiting each other. And uh, we may know that Thailand has, has always been a very f favorable destination country for Chinese tourists. And uh, it was reported, I think, by the press when the news came out. There are, we have seen that sort of seven times of increase of online search from Chinese, uh, I mean, potential tourists for Thailand. And this is also very much, I think, helps the Thailand side. Thailand. Uh, particularly in terms of the setup government's uh, economic strategy uh, to develop the economy. Tourism is a very much a sort of a industry for Thailand. For Thailand, it takes up, uh, I think, 12% of GDP and one-fifth of the job generates one-fifth of the job. And uh, unfortunately, because of the uh, Disruption caused by the COVID-19, particularly Chinese tourists. I mean, the arrivals has been affected. Now, I think Thailand has set up a target to have, I mean, eight million Chinese tourists visiting Thailand to meet its goal of 35 million tourists in to Thailand. I think with this uh, visa, uh, mutually visa uh, sort of exemption we're going to see more. And this is only one part of the story. I mean, the other side, of course, with the visa exemption arrangement, I, I would assume that business communities, business travels were also being growing after China and are the largest trading partner and also largest investor for Thailand. So we will see more and more interactions. And last but not least, I think that uh, with this arrangement, people, uh, the, the exchange of visitors will be greatly exchanged, just like it's, it's really a kind of a family visiting each other, um, greatly facilitated, more understanding and uh, bringing more sort of uh, even closer relations and uh, greatly facilitate the, uh, I mean, the interactions of the two countries and peoples at the different levels. So it's really a great news and very much welcome by the two peoples and all walks of life, two countries. That was Dr. Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies.
The Qatari Prime Minister says a framework on a phased ceasefire in Gaza has been reached. Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdullah Lahman Al Thani says progress has been made during his talks with top officials from Israel, the U.S., and Egypt. The framework includes a phased truce that will see women and children hostages released first, with aid also entering besieged Gaza. So, for more on the topic, let's have Sultan Hal. A retired Air Force officer and author in Pakistan. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Holly. Thank you so much for having me on your show. First of all, can you provide insights into the key elements of the ceasefire framework mentioned by Qatar's Prime Minister?、Uh, how he aims to address the current crisis in Gaza? Well,、uh, he appeared very sanguine and hopeful when he presented、uh, this particular framework. And、uh, please remember. That this framework was reached between、uh, the negotiators, which included、uh, the CIA's director, the、uh, head of the Mossad, and also the head of the Egyptian、uh, intelligence, and of course,、uh, His Excellency the uh, Qatari um, negotiator. But uh, uh, you see, th- this uh, particular framework it,、uh, and the negotiations.、Uh, I see a problem with that:、uh, that there was、uh, no negotiator. From the Palestinians, there should have been one to have uh, to carry uh, forward their viewpoint. Anyway, this framework, which has been uh, uh, reached between uh, agreement, has been reached only between the negotiators. Now it has to be presented both to Israel and to Hamas. Although initial uh, reactions have come out, but as you rightly pointed out, that this calls uh, this framework calls for a, a first phase of civilian hostage released to take place over a six-week. Uh, pause with three Palestinian prisoners, which、uh, who were held by Israel, will be released for each civilian hostage、uh, from the Palestinians. They will be returned. Now, this ratio can increase uh, for the uh, return of the Israeli Defense Forces soldiers, and of course, there could be a longer pause possible be- beyond the six week, which is being decided for initially. And in the interim period, of course,、uh, aid will be. Permitted, which is extremely, and in fact, it has reached、uh, dire circumstances for the relief of the people who are in Gaza.、Mm-hmm. As you said, not all crucial parties were involved in this talk. Earlier, the senior Hamas official mentioned a desire for a complete and comprehensive ceasefire instead of a temporary truce. So, how do you expect Hamas to respond to this? Phased ceasefire. What challenges might arise、uh, in reaching a common understanding? Well,、uh, you have brought out a very important point.、Uh, first of all, please remember that in November, also earlier, a temporary ceasefire was、uh, achieved, and in which about 100 hostages、uh, were returned. But this uh, 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 short respite was only for a week,、mm-hmm. and the moment it ended, Israel. Restarted its bombardment, incessant、uh, killing of the people in Gaza, and、uh, you should look at the figures that、uh, the original attack that took place,、uh, perpetrated by the Hamas on the seventh of October, resulted in twelve hundred casualties. But to date, more than twenty-six thousand Gazans have been eliminated. Now、uh, th- there is no ratio to this. So therefore, the uh, uh, you see Hamas. Now, doesn't believe that a temporary、uh, truce is going to resolve the situation. They are asking for a complete and a composite and a total、uh, ceasefire. And b- beyond that, they are not willing to talk. We see Israel has acknowledged the talks as constructive, but highlighted significant gaps. So, how do you view Israel's stance and consideration on this temporary truce? Well, you see, there were two、uh, very senior Israeli、uh, officials present there. The head of the Mossad was there, and also the head of the Shin Bet, and therefore they had、uh, their inputs into this. And without their inputs, probably this kind of a framework would not have been achieved. But what、uh, the office of the Prime Minister—I I mean, I'm talking about the Israeli Prime Minister—is、mm-hmm. saying that yes, these talks are constructive, but they say that there are、uh, certain conditions which are not acceptable. But unfortunately, they have not、uh, highlighted or outlined which conditions are not acceptable. Probably, I mean, in my opinion, they are hinting at the fact that the Hamas is asking for a, a complete、uh, ceasefire, 
and not a temporary ceasefire. Despite the ongoing peacemaking efforts, Israel has continued its assault on Gaza. The Palestinian House Ministry says Israeli bombing has killed over 200 people in 24 hours, including 20 members of one family. How do you rate such a move from the Israeli side? Well, I think that was a very counterproductive. Uh, once negotiations are in progress and uh, two senior officials from Israel are attending that and the talks are being held in a neutral city like Paris, uh, it would have been expected that in good faith, Israel could have halted uh, the uh, assault on the Gazans, but instead it came out with full fury. Probably it wanted to tell the people from Palestine, the Hamas, uh, that uh, unless they agree to the conditions or they agree to uh, you know, uh, the, the broad framework which has been uh, sorted out, they're not willing to relent. Now, please look at this in the backdrop that in the near past, we have had uh, the International Court of Justice, which was approached by uh, South Africa uh, to, uh, to call for against the genocide which is being carried out. And the International Court of Justice, definitely it found in its findings that Israel was indulging in genocide and it ordered that the genocide must stop, but the genocide has not stopped. Contrarily, the United Nations, uh, you see, um, agency for UNRWA, uh, which was providing relief to the people in Gaza, uh, it was declared by Israel that 12 of its members were involved with the Hamas and therefore uh, they requested the rest of the world who were providing uh, funds to UNRWA to stop them. And immediately, without even, I mean, at the drop of a hat, 10 countries, which includes the United States, which includes uh, Europe, which includes the UK, they stopped this. And this has this is going to damage the humanitarian effort over there. So uh, coming back to your question, I think uh, the uh, mood is very clear that the people who are not only pro proliferating this uh, kind of uh, genocide and the people who are conducting it, they mean business in trying to eliminate the people from of Gaza rather than bring an end to the mm -hmm. atrocities. In a major escalation in tensions, we know three U.S. soldiers were killed on Sunday in Jordan following a drone attack at a U.S. military base near the Syrian border. And the Qatari prime minister mentioned potential U.S. retaliation and its impact on regional security. How do you see the U.S. involvement in the resolution of Gaza conflict and what implications might any retaliation have on the negotiation progress? Well, uh, besides the Qatari person, you see, we, I had the opportunity to listen to the words of uh, Joe Biden, the mm. president of the United States of America. He himself not only has expressed his, of course, uh, sadness at the loss of the life of uh, three U.S. soldiers, but he has said that the U.S. is going to respond. Now, this is a very dangerous situation because to date, the, there were no uh, Americans or at least American forces who had been killed in this, although there were some American citizens who were taken hostage uh, by the Hamas, we, but we did not see any loss of any uh, life of uh, U.S. soldiers. Therefore, this is a very uh, destructive uh, kind of development, although if you look at the other situation in which the Houthis have jumped in and the Houthis have been trying to stop the uh, flow of uh, oil from the Red Sea, and in which uh, they are carrying out attacks and the Americans have retaliated in attacking uh, the Houthis, uh, this could escalate the war into the region, which will be extremely dangerous, not only for the Hamas, but for the entire region and bring it into a state of conflict. Thank you, Sultan Hali, a retired Air Force officer and author in Pakistan. You're all listening to Road Today. We'll be back after a short break. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us.
This is World Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. Experts at Germany's central bank have warned of the consequences of a sudden decoupling from China for the German economy. In an article published on the official website of Deutsche Bundesbank, this expert said many German industrial firms have generated high sales and profits from production in China and high revenues from exports to China. According to the article, about seven percent. Percent of total German goods exports went to China in 2022, with the sectors such as auto, mechanical engineering, electronic, and electric engineering being significantly more reliant on Chinese demand. These experts warned that an abrupt decoupling from China would deal a heavy blow to the German industry. They called for further de-risking instead of a unilateral departure from China. So, for more on this, joining us in the studio is my colleague Liu Quan. Great to have you again, Liu Quan. Thanks for having me, Anna. First of all, how big of a deal is it that German central bank has released an article openly discussing the economic ties with China, especially on the risks of decoupling with China,、mm. on its website? Right. So indeed, it is always important that the central bank of a certain country sends out a message on a certain issue.、Uh, Germany is the world's fourth largest economy and the biggest economy in Europe.、Uh, the concern of the German central bank certainly matters a lot. Um, and it is particularly important that the article is about China.、Uh, it shows that German policymakers and top economists are very aware that the two economies are very close, closely linked to each other, and they should always, you know, constantly keep an eye on the Chinese economy. Then, can you give us a rundown of the key points and arguments presented in this article? Right. So the idea in the article is mainly twofold. One is that these economists are concerned about the development of the Chinese economy、uh, because of the heavy reliance of the、uh, German economy on the Chinese one. The other is that they propose instead of a, de- a complete decouple, German firms should consider de-risk from China. Well, I will talk about more about what the Chinese economists and policymakers. Are saying later during our conversation,、uh, but first let's see how these German economists view Germany's economic relations with China. On trade, the article said that、uh, an abrupt decoupling, as you said earlier in the news, will mean a heavy blow to the German industry. It said firms、uh, directly invested in China stood to lose a substantial part of their sales.、Uh, although although just seven percent of total German goods exports to,、uh, went to China in 2022, but there are sectors,、uh, you know, are which are heavily rely reliant on the Chinese demand, as you said earlier、uh, in the auto. Sector, mechanical engin- engineering, etc. Well, what's more important is that、mm, you know,、uh, quite a number of firms are directly or indirectly,、uh, you know, reliant on Chinese critical intermediate inputs. Um, like batteries, sometimes energy storage devices, and you know sometimes raw materials such as rare earth.、Mm-hmm. So these economists say that if、uh, those supplies were to dry up, Germany would well experience you know a severe production loss.、Uh, and the the German central bank has done a survey earlier that found out、uh, nearly one out out of every two firms in the manufacturing sector in the country. Directly or indirectly sources critical、uh, intermediate inputs from China.、Um, also, the article mentioned finance.、Uh, compared with borrowers from other countries, China only comes up、uh, just as twentieth in terms of、uh, total amounts borrowed and has not risen significantly throughout the years. But、uh, the experts are worried that the German banks have large exposures, you know, to domestic enterprises and sectors that are heavily depend dependent on China.、Um, a far-reaching disruption, you know, to the German-Chinese economic relations would mean that these companies will, you know, significantly be、uh, be affected and probably will increase the probability of loans defaulting. So the article also wrote that,、um, you know, the、uh, German firms should consider、uh, the positive value, the positive side of、uh, you know dealing with Chinese companies, because they have generated high sales and profits,、uh, you know, from dealing with China in the past few decades.、Um, 
and a complete decouple would mean that you know German companies will miss out on the Chinese market and supply chains will be you know realigned, but at the cost of losing efficiency. So in light of everything, these experts then argue you know instead of a complete departure, these companies should consider. Uh, de-risk from China.、Mm, I think the numbers are staggering. Could you、mm. dive a bit deeper into the significance of the economic relationship between China and Germany? What are the major sectors they trade in, and how crucial are they to each other's economies、mm. today? Indeed, well, Germany has long been China's biggest trading partner within the European Union.、Uh, till 2022, China has been the largest trading partner of Germany for seven consecutive years.、Uh, China buys. Autos, auto parts, medicine, medical supplies, etc., from Germany, and Germany buys mainly labor-intensive products from China and a few categories of high-tech products.、Um, and Germany is the biggest investor in China among European countries.、Um, you know, main areas of German investment、uh, in China include auto, chemicals, transportation, communications, etc. Well,、um, I would say more importantly, China and Germany have a wide array of interests on the global. Stage regarding liberalization of the economic order globally and the promotion of multilateralism. For for a long time, both governments have been long advocates of free trade, globalization, etc. And both economies have benefited from that. The two governments talk、uh, regularly to each other through the mechanism of China-Germany high-level financial dialogue. That shows you know just how how much they value each other. Let's shift gears to Germany's current economic state, because we heard talks about a recession in the country by the end of 2023. Can you provide an update on the current economic situation in the country?、Mm, right. So we indeed have the latest data released by the German government earlier this month, mid-January,、uh, that showed that the German economy contracted. In 2023, by 0.3 percent. Remember, in 2022, the growth rate was、uh, positive 1.8 percent,、uh, as you know, the German economy continued to rebound from the shock of the pandemic. Well, a number of issues are affecting the performance of the German economy. One of the main problem is、uh, the Ukraine crisis, which、uh, have affected the energy prices not only in Germany but also in quite a few other European countries. Then, in return, this would affect consumer spending and also the, in the confidence、uh, of investment. So. In return, that was reflected in output in industry. Remember, that's a long success, successful component of Germany.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the output in industry contracted two percent, you know, in 2023, primarily from lower production in the energy sector, and also Germany was facing tightening financial condition. That was mainly an influence of the European Central Bank.、Uh, that slowed the construction sector. And also, but the service sector in Germany helped the overall economy, but at a weaker pace.、Um, well, the general estimation by economists in Germany is that the country will recover. We'll see a mild recovery in 2024.、Uh, they believe that inflation will cool, interest rates start to fall, and real wage rises will help boost,、uh, you know, consumption、uh, confidence. So that's generally the the situation of the German economy at the moment. Then Liu Kuan, the article suggests that China's economic challenges might impact Germany, emphasizing the need for German firms to reduce risks from China and strengthen their own resilience、um, mm. of their own economy. What have been said about this by Chinese economists and policymakers? Right, indeed. So、uh, we heard from Chinese Premier Li Qiang at the at latest annual meeting in Davos that you know China's GDP grow five. 5.2 percent year on year,、uh, you know, in 2023. That rate is higher than the government's annual target of around 5 percent, which was set at the beginning of 2023 at the two sessions,、um, and it also exceeds the 3 percent increase in 2022.、Uh, in specifics, despite a downward trend in global trade, China's exports actually logged an increase last year.、Mm-hmm. Uh, its CPI, which is the main gauge of consumer spending、uh, confidence, was up only. 0.2 percent last year.、Um, this is、uh, in stark contrast with、uh, you know those persistently high inflation rates in some Western economies. 
and data from both the Chinese government and respected global agencies such as you know the IMF show that China contributed to roughly 30 percent of global growth in 2023. Uh, India was next, about 17 percent. Mm. Well, analysis in Western media often point to the population issue, uh, real estate sector, and a few other things to argue that the Chinese economy is on a downward trajectory. Well, the real situation is that, you know, China is a Chinese policymakers are well aware of these issues and they're dealing with it, you know, one by one. Um, one more thing about the de-risk that uh, some American and European politicians often talk about. American politicians talk about it because they are worried that China will take over the United States as the biggest economy sometime in the future. European politicians talk about it because uh, I'm afraid they haven't made up uh, about this, their mind about the specifics of their China policy. Uh, Europe have long talked about you know, strategic autonomy. Maybe it's time for them to really stop following the United States and come up with their own strategy on this. Thanks, Quinn, for your time and analysis. That's my colleague Liu Quinn on China-Germany economic ties. Housing costs are a growing concern for Americans. A new report confirms housing has become unaffordable for 22 million Americans. So for more on the U.S. housing and economy as a whole, our Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tengen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. So, Aina, thank you for joining us. So what are the main reasons, do you think, driving up the housing costs or the rent prices in the United States? Well, you you have to look at them in three different uh, time spans. I mean, over the last 45 years, uh, basically, uh, American disposable income has stagnated. Uh, Incomes have not risen uh, the way uh, you would expect in the world's most uh, prosperous economy. And then you had uh, the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people moved. Um, you know, prices for rentals skyrocketed. They were up uh, almost 20 percent. Uh, and then you have inflation, which has been eating away at people's incomes and uh, making it uh, more and more difficult for them to afford even just basic necessities like rent and food. And the Harvey survey shows that a record number of 12 million people in the United States spending half of their yearly income on rent. So how did it get to this point? Well, as, as I said, uh, you know, um, long term um, incomes haven't been rising. Uh, the inflation and then also the uh, after effects of the pandemic. I mean, uh, last year, rentals actually went down by 1%, but they're still 19% ahead of where they were in 2019 before the pandemic. Uh, What's unusual is that these are middle income uh, people, uh, renters uh, from 30,000 to 74, uh, almost 75,000 saw the sharpest rise in in their burden since 2019. Uh, You know, 653,000 people are homeless on any given night. Uh, That was in January 2023. And it's just, you know, it's been one series of bad moves after another. And despite all this, these stories about how uh, there are so many jobs out there, what you find is that people have uh, lost jobs, uh, good paying jobs, and been, uh, you know, basically forced uh, for a want of an ability to work five jobs uh, to basically cut down. Mm-hmm. And what sort of a plan does the government have to really address this issue? Well, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the way to address this takes a long time. Even if they pass legislation today and it got through the House which, uh, and the Senate, which is highly improbable, neither side is uh, going to allow the other side to claim um, victory or to claim to help uh, the, this middle class area. And, you know, the, the, the people we're talking about are, are not the minority. We're talking about 60% of the U.S. Uh, these are people who uh, are seriously hurting um, because of the uh, over the last three years. And you know, unfortunately, uh, everyone pays attention to the 40% who actually have done quite well. Um, unfortunately, you cannot run a democracy or an economy uh, just taking uh, care of, of you know 
this 40%. Now, they could change zoning laws uh, to try to make it easier to, to build things, but this would run into constitutional challenges. Uh, people would say, no, no, I don't want anything to change. I'm going to take you to the Supreme Court. Um, they could uh, directly subsidize uh, low-income renters, but a program like that would take years to set up and to actually operate. And what you have now is people in immediate need uh, facing a situation where they either pay the rent and their utilities or they buy food for their children and themselves. Mm-hmm. And what does it say about the U.S. economy? On the one hand, Americans grapple with the high housing costs, but uh, on the other hand, the stock market, the U.S. stock market hit new records, the S&P 500 and the Dow. So what does it tell us? Well, I, I think there's a, there's this moment of irrational exuberance uh, as, as it applies to the markets. There is no reason. Uh, the U.S., uh, even by internal standards, is if you know next year 50% chance of going into recession. Uh, even if it doesn't, uh, the World Bank, IMF, etc., all forecasting somewhere around 1.4% growth. Um, that's not taking into account all the uh, problems that are arising because of you know what's happening in the Red Sea and Gaza. Uh, those could affect uh, global uh, demand uh, and uh, GDP activity. So I mean things are are, are not looking good yet. The uh, stock market is you know going crazy. And and this gets back to this issue of um, if you're talking about the 40 percent or if you know. Um, as they pointed out in Davos, the five richest people in the world doubled uh, their net worth since 2018, while over 60% of the rest of the world uh, mm. lost money. And talking about the policy, a group of uh, Democratic lawmakers is now urging the Federal Reserve to implement relief as soon as possible. And they say it's time for the Federal Reserve to cut the interest rates and bring relief to Americans who cannot afford to pay the rents. And housing is certainly very interest rate sensitive. So what do you expect from the uh, Federal Reserve's meeting this week? And what will be in their considerations? Well, the Fed has been uh, completely um, focused on inflation. Now, they're patting themselves on the back because they believe because of the uh, employment numbers and also the strength of the stock market that they have engineered a soft landing. Uh, They're completely deaf to this 60% of people who are are suffering right now. They they say, well, this is just the economic consequences of a market economy, and in the end, it'll all work out. So in in their uh, meeting... Uh, do not expect uh, any kind of movement. Um, as they begin the year, they're not interested in, uh, you know, the plight of individual people. They're they're more concerned about the general economy. Unfortunately, that's the top 40% as opposed to the bottom 60%. So while, um, you know, as many legislatures, uh, legislators as they want, or even Biden will try to tell them that uh, they need to do something about this, it is doubtful that they'll do it. Later on in the year, it's possible. It depends on what happens with inflation. Mm. And earlier you mentioned the job market and uh, the big tax and media companies in the U.S. have kicked off this year with fresh plans to cut jobs. And uh, a lot of people say that, uh, you know, uh, the uh, series of layoffs seen last year is likely to continue as the firms uh, navigate the persistent economic uncertainties this year. So how do you look at the U.S. job market this year? Well, I, I mean, once again, it's a, it's a story of a divided uh, world. Um, on one hand, there are plenty of jobs if you're willing to deliver pizzas or do DoorDash or drive an Uber. Uh, on the other hand, if, uh, you know, there are 25,000 uh, highly paid, highly skilled workers in the tech field that were laid off in the last four months alone. And the signal is that that number could even climb this year. So you're talking about uh, people losing jobs that have very, very high incomes, high disposable, in, um, uh, you know, disposable incomes, they are going to be in a situation where, you know, what are they going to do? They can't replace those jobs. Uh, there's very few people hiring within their industry. 
so they're they're really stuck uh, in the middle of nowhere. They have to wait. Uh, the question is, were they living, you know, basically paycheck to paycheck? Will they able to um, afford their mortgages? You know, people, um, you know, <laughs> remember when they were talking about Cupertino and and the sky high prices for very ordinary homes that were being commanded during the height of the tech boom. Um, those carry enormous mortgages. And if you can't uh, keep that up, you don't have a job, uh, you're going to lose that house. Um, and, you know, there, there are real, real problems out there. I mean, along uh, other solutions, they're talking about, uh, uh, you know, they want to drive the interest rates down to vis-a-vis the Fed because they think that this will lead to a housing boom, you know, making more housing. It's very unattractive right now with uh, borrowing rates around 8%. Uh, no one wants to build. Uh, but the fact is that will take years uh, mm. to, to come. And, you know, we are facing this immediate crisis. Unfortunately, policymakers just uh, aren't interested. Mm. And, and and businesses are reacting to the business climate. You know, glo- global demand is down. Um, so you would expect that people would be looking to China, which had 5.2% growth last year and is expecting probably around 5% this year versus Europe, which is going to be at 1.2%. Highly likely they will go into recession. The U.S. 50% chance and only 1.4% growth at the best estimate. Um, So they're becoming, uh, China is becoming more competitive as the U.S. is becoming less competitive. That was Einar Tiangen, Senior Fellow at Taihe Institute. China is urging the United States to stop its unwarranted practices of blocking Chinese students at the border. The Chinese embassy released a statement on Monday cautioning against travel through Dallas International Airport in Washington, D.C. Over the past few months, the U.S. has denied entry to dozens of Chinese students holding valid visas trying to return to school from overseas travel or visiting relatives in China. According to the embassy statement, the student has have been interrogated for hours, faced groundless accusations, and in some cases even forcefully deported upon arrival. To provide deeper insights into this matter and its potential ramification for the broader China-U.S. relations, we are joined by Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Zhao. Thank you for having me. First of all, the large-scale restrictions of Chinese students in the United States began during the Trump administration. Can you provide your take on the increasing challenges Chinese students faced at U.S. borders over the years? Yeah, um, the uh, question uh, actually happened during the Trump administration in 2020 when uh, the Trump administration uh, issued an executive order called Proclamation 143. Uh, in which uh, the Trump administration accusing some of Chinese students studying in the United States uh, of having connections to China's civil military fusion programs and helping China technologically to develop uh, some technologies that will help the military. Uh, so they uh, revoked thousands of uh, visas that those have been already issued to Chinese students and also denied many Chinese uh, universities that they claim to have ties with Chinese military and those students coming out of those universities to go to the United States and study relevant uh, subjects in the United States. So after that, however, even with the new administration, the Biden administration, uh, they didn't um, actually uh, revoke or terminate that proclamation, and they continued the policy from the Trump administration, and they continue to deny entry of uh, Chinese students who have legally uh, acquired visa from the State Department. So now we're having this very uh, bad environment in which at the border, some of the law enforcement will cut off uh, the uh, Chinese students' uh, career in the United States and forcefully deport some of the students who try to enter into the country. So I think overall, this is uh, not uh, following the spirit from the last November summit between China and the United States president, and leading to uh, one after another bad cases affecting Chinese students in the United States. 
Speaking of the meeting in San Francisco, you mentioned in last November, the two heads of states pledged to enhance exchanges in education, students, youth, and culture. But recent developments have presented challenges for Chinese students. What potential implications do these actions hold for current U.S.-China relations, especially with the approaching 2024 general election? Well, two points. First of all, I think that's the agreement between the two sides uh, during the San Francisco summit. People-to-people exchanges between the two countries having vital importance uh, of trying to uh, increase uh, cooperation between the countries, and particularly among young people. When they learn together, living together, and exchange ideas more often, they tend to have better understandings of each other and help to build a better relations for bilateral relations. However, with these cases, increasing cases of preventing Chinese students from entering the country and also interrogate and harass them and uh, uh, questioning, uh, basically uh, harming their human rights, it's not helping the people-to-people exchanges. It's not according to the very spirit that the two top leaders reached. And Mm -hmm. the second point is about, uh, you know, the future uh, impact, which is uh, this will have a very chilling impact on the bilateral relationship. And in the future, Chinese students will have questions, and their parents will also have fears about sending their children to go to the United States. And that will, I think, in the long run, harm the bilateral relationship and also uh, leading to more uh, extreme ideas uh, from the U.S. side, encouraging those politicians who try to prevent bilateral exchanges, giving them more voices uh, in this conservative environment in the United States. Dr. Zhao, many reports indicate that the U.S. has constantly used the concept of national security to target Chinese students, asserting that they may pose a threat to the U.S. national security. How do you assess such uh, allegations? Is the younger generation of Chinese people truly a threat to the United States? Of course, that's uh, nonsense. Uh, Basically, if the United States considers students studying certain subjects in the United States uh, is, harming to, uh, is harmful to United States national security, then from the very beginning, the State Department will not and should not issue a visa to that particular student. So the very fact that those students have already obtained visa from the United States and just in the process of traveling to the United States and then being stopped by border uh, law enforcement means that internally the United States have their own internal struggle. That means they don't have a consistent policy towards China, and they have a very problem within their own government. So I don't think, in the first place, I don't think there's a real threat uh, to the United States national security because these are young students um, and, and you know go to the United States to study with the U.S. Uh, and those um, things that U.S. consider a technology that can be used militarily it's very limited, very small area, and those areas is in tight control by the U.S. And now the U.S. is basically um, having abused this idea of national security and consider many, many dual technologies as um, related, directly related or directly contributing to military development in China. And that's the very problem. That's why, since the very beginning, China said it is a wrong conception of China's strategy on the U.S. side that is harming bilateral relationship. Thanks, Dr. John Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today with me, Anna. Thank you so much for staying with us.